What, what about some of competition? What, what about, you know, it's not just defense contractors. What about some competition, potentially um, from big tech? I'm thinking about Microsoft. Sure. Uh, they, you know, Pentagon awards in this $10 billion cloud computing contract. It sounds like Amazon is going to protest that, but they also won that almost um, $500 million to build AR goggles for the Army. Do you consider um, Satya Nadella's company a serious rival? No, actually, I, I think that we're going to be doing a lot of work with Microsoft on a lot of this stuff. You know, you're not going to have one company owning everything anyway. Uh, you know, I'm glad that Microsoft and Amazon are vigorously competing for this Jedi contract. You know, contrast that with Google that dropped out because they said they couldn't be sure the government was going to abide to their internal corporate ethics principles. Um, I think that there's a big difference, though, between what Amazon and Microsoft are doing with, let's say, Jedi and what we're doing. You know, uh, Microsoft has said that the military will always have access to their best technology, and that's true, but they also are selling to everyone. They're building a product that's for everyone. Everything that we're building is specifically for the Department of Defense. You know, we're not going out there and saying, let's resell the thing that, you know, where we make 90% of our money in the consumer of the enterprise space. We're going and saying, what do they need? What is the absolute perfect thing? You know, and I don't think that Microsoft, Amazon, or any of these big companies big tech companies are going to go all in and say, we are going to build products that are going to be controversial, part of the kill chain, and designed specifically for DOD. Because if it reduces their consumer enterprise sales by you know, 1%, or if it increases controversy by 1%, it's likely not worth doing. Do you think... Um Andrew benefits because you are a well-known supporter of President Donald Trump. Does that benefit the company when you're competing for government work? And, and if it does, is that is that any kind of risk for Andrew if President Trump doesn't win re-election? I think that the DOD is really nonpartisan. I think that people focus on the look. Politics make up a tiny fraction of a percent of what I spend my time doing, what I spend working on. I think that it's the thing that you know gets a lot of media attention and people focus on it. The reality is the DOD. They go through different administrations. You know, they, they, they're working on the same projects, administration to administration. There's not a lot of change on a partisan basis for the most part. I think that we're going to do well under a Republican president. I think we'll do well under a Democrat president. Uh, I think we would do well under a Libertarian president. I think we'd, you know, if, if, if any other party were to ever get relevance, then that would. It's interesting, probably because the, one of your big backers, though, is Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. I mean, Peter is a guy who seems like he has the president's ear, but you're saying that that doesn't have a, a meaningful impact when you're competing for that government work. I don't think so. I don't think that the people in the DoD are taking those things into account. And you're know, like Peter. The reason he's an investor in us, it's not because we agree on the president. It's because. Founders Fund, which is Peter's fund, uh, was the first institutional investor in Oculus. You know, I have a relationship going back with Peter. He believed in virtual reality when there had never been a successful virtual reality company in history. So he's able to see when things are going to work before other people see that they're going to work. I think that it's the same thing here. It's very clear that the U.S. Department of Defense needs more companies doing strong technology work and saying we will stick with the government. We're not going to back down. We're not going to say we can't work with you because it's too controversial. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 20 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jason, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And today we're joined by Michael Richardson, a senior research fellow at the University of New South Wales and an expert on the cultural politics of military technology and drones in particular, uh, to help us do a deep dive into Andural Industries, 
one of the most actually evil yet somehow little known technology companies in existence today. Um, and and in, in a lot of ways, this week's episode is something of a spiritual successor to our episode on Palantir um, back, I think, episode five, uh, where we really dove into Palantir's IPO and all of that. And so in a lot of ways, Andural is like this brash little brother of Palantir and its founder, Palmer Lucky, is a devoted acolyte of Peter Till. And they, they both find this weird inspiration in bringing to life weapons from the Lord of the Rings. Um, so Palantir, as everyone knows, named for the all-seeing crystal ball, while Anduril takes its name for an unbreakable sword. So you've got both going on here, the Watcher and the Warrior, which brings me to the, the Lord of the Rings, obviously a huge mistake. You know, there's something, um, you know, you should be a little suspicious when the, when the thrust of the story is like these pure pale-skinned people are fighting mud people that are bringing fire brimstone to an otherwise perfect and unspoiled <laughs> landscape, you know, uh, beyond the usual racism that goes on in fantasy <laughs> world. As a kid, you know, Lord of the Rings was one of my first sort of oh, yeah, big stories that I read and it was like so formative and, and it all felt, seemed so exciting. And like looking back, you know, and particularly kind of rereading snap, like little snippets of it over the years or, or watching the films, it's, dark man like the, <laughs> the the fascism is like not even it's not even far beneath the surface like uh scratch a metaphor and it's there uh look back at all of that because i also read the lord of the rings when i was a kid and like all of this and looking back at it and being like damn there, there really is just a natural kind of synergy here between fascist and fantasy like high fantasy in in this way right that romantic strain of like we have to go back but it's like go back to chivalry and hierarchy and, and oppression and violence and like traditional forms not like this you know the great sin of the orcs is like they're being used for evil to bring machines to warfare and as part of this quest to uh, you know for Sauron to get the ring Yeah, any not not the not the war well not warfare in itself, not the constant wars that have dominated like Middle Earth or the or this fantasy world. It's that the mud people are, are you you know being used, and that's like why you have to exterminate them, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a lot like you know one of um there's a game on the, uh called Middle Earth uh, Shadow of Mordor uh where you literally just play as a terrorist uh against the orcs. I, there's no other way to say it. your goal is to assassinate them. <laughs> terrorize them enslave them um you do like guerrilla tactics where you like uh you 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 kill their you poison their food you burn like their settlements you face off against individuals and murder them uh you like unleash like it's just it's just terrorism <laughs> by, by one human <laughs> Uh, or, or, a or a special forces unit out of control, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he is actually out of control because he, at one point in the story, uses the ring to get more power. So it's like, I don't know, some special... It's like the American sniper, you know, essentially. He's just out of control and on his own. But, you know, I think the Lord of the Rings thing is instructive because, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the, the picture of what a good civilization and a good world looks like in the Lord of the Rings is hierarchical, it's traditional, it's homogenous. It has mm -hmm. like a static system and a static structure that just doesn't change. And um, great people are venerated 
everybody else is kind of not important at all. And what mm-hmm. the veneration of Aragorn and like all of these other warriors and the elves and so on does is ensures like the quiet middle-class life of the, of the Shire. You know, the hobbits are the English country folk who um, can be concerned about their their lunch and their veggie gardens because there are these, like, great protectors out in the world um, holding back the forces of darkness through the the system that they have and, and the weaponry that they have. Look at these countryside folks. All they want to do is eat all day, and they, can, they can't be concerned with things until one of them finds gold, and all of a sudden, you know, his brain gets perverted, and then he turns into Schmeagol and feels the hobbits, nobody can trust them. <laughs> <laughs> That's very a good. fucking creepy ass and very dead on Schmeagol and and uh, really bring into the surface the uh, the anti-Semitism in the in final uh, uh, fucking Lord of the Rings as well. I mean, that's why you yeah. named him Gollum. Yeah. You know, the stuff that pulled people in was like the world building, the thousands of hours of minutia, uh, uh, all done by this quirky little 1930, like British man in the 1930s. And in retrospect, that's like, Oh, because he was racist. That's, <laughs> racist, that's anti-Semitic. <laughs> the reason we bring all that up is because this is exactly the shit that is inspiring uh, this like next generation of uh, defense contractors and weapons builders, uh, these venture capitalists and these technology entrepreneurs. Uh, I mean, and- Andural Industries is... Such an interesting case study to dive into because I, I think it really encapsulates what this like next wave of mm-hmm. the the new primes as they want to be called right. So the um, the defense uh, contract, the military industrial complex, is really dominated by these like five primes, and you know it's all household names like Boeing and Northrop Grumman. You know these kind of big military contractors that are building weapons and machinery and ships and missiles and all of this. And Enduro is really trying to set itself up as uh, disrupting the military space, the defense contractor space. Quite a, a, a dynastic lineage within the technology sector. So maybe before we get into like a lot of the big details about like Enduro and its its technologies and its links to uh, the quote unquote virtual wall along the, the Mexican um, American border uh, and its links to all of this like really right wing shit. Maybe we should uh, back up a little bit and be like, who is Palmer Lucky and, and where, where did the Enduro industries come from? Tell us a little bit about who Palmer Lucky is. There's a piece that came out in Wired that, you know, introduces or talks at least about uh, this project he's trying to do along the border, right, where he sets up a a series of, you know, all-seeing eyes. They're able to see miles out. It's eventually called Latisse. Uh, Uses AI ostensibly to see if something is going to be a human being or an animal. All of that technology kind of rooted in... You know, his vision is kind of rooted in him being a gamer and and basically creating uh, Oculus. Um, they grew out of his home VR system. 
system, right, in an attempt to get closer and closer to the game itself. Kicks off uh, Kickstarter in 2012. Yeah, he's uh, a real wonderkin as well, because he was like 17 yeah. when he created right. the first kind of like Oculus virtual reality rig. Right. That's also another thing to highlight. Like, this is someone, he's very young and has achieved and achieved like just huge amounts of like wealth infusion and success off the Oculus, right? Zuckerberg comes in, he buys Oculus for $2 billion. You know, Lucky goes on to, you know, work within there. Lucky is then looking for more funders and trying to figure out what he wants to do next. He connects to the Founders Fund, right? The Founders Fund is Peter Thiel's fund, uh, investment fund um, in early stage uh you know, startups. Peter Thiel is also connected to Facebook as one of the early investors of Facebook. And a member. Right. So it's like at a Founders Fund event, he connects with a Palantir employee, former employee who is... um, also a defense industry analyst, a ghost that, and he won't know, he won't name what agency he worked for because uh, classified. Um, yeah, this is Trey and, uh, Stevens, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, you know, is, you know, all these people are also still with uh, Andero, uh to this day, right? So Trey Stevens and him uh, go on to recruit you know, more Pal- former Palantir employees, right, and executives. Founders Fund also serves as a way for them to network into more funders, into political connections, into people, and to also supercharge the imagination, right, they have where Lucky is saying, look, there are only two major startups that are invested or involved with the government contracting. It's Palantir, also Lord of the Rings uh, inspired, and SpaceX, uh, allegedly inspired by the Culture Series. Uh, we can come into that space, right? We can make billions of dollars because the because the defense industry is spending billions of dollars, and over time they're they're experimenting with what it is that they can use VR for, right? You know, Lucky in the past used VR to work on PTSD PTSD treatment, and so in the in the story he tells um, Wired, he says he starts thinking about how to use it to save troubled government projects like the F thirty five, right? How to use it to try to augment military surveillance or um, you know targeting systems. This eventually kicks off to a connection to the DHS, a pitch to the DHS, right? Where he you know figures out we could probably uh, figure out a way to use our VR for a military system um, and we could either use it for forward operating bases or the idea that they eventually pursue the border because the other competitors in the border space failed spectacularly. Boeing tried to do a wall, a virtual wall in 2006, it cost $7.6 billion, and it didn't fucking work at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And part of that was because it was way too early, and the sensors and the cameras cost thousands of dollars, uh, but also just because it's the typical government contracting grift among these uh, companies where they charge you 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 percent of what that, the thing actually costs, right? Uh, on the rule and lucky, you know, with this, you know, Avengers esque team of Palantir uh, uh, officials or Palantir executives and defense industry spooks uh, decide that what they're going to do is pitch border security a wall. Um, a digital wall that will use cutting edge artificial intelligence um, and other systems to keep it lean, low cost, and even more expansive uh, than other non-cost effective measures like having a drone patrol something, you know, having literally set up a wall that would cost millions of dollars every mile or half mile instead of, mm-hmm. you know, an estimated half million a mile. Um, and I think that that is um, 
you know, also like that's the that's the business side. Politically, he's also someone to watch out for because he's, you know, connected to the alt right. He's a proud Trump supporter, calls himself a libertarian. Uh, he's got in trouble for uh, he, he calls himself. He calls himself a little L libertarian, capital R Republican. No, I- <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that's, that that's intersectionality. Before. He identifies as both a libertarian and a Republican <laughs> and, is, and is for a strong state and strong military, while also right. for things like uh, freedom and individual entrepreneurialism. And we love it. We love it. And Lucky's um, likely connected to the alt-right. He donated like $10,000 to this alt-right group and when confronted about it said, oh, they had fresh ideas about reaching new voters. And it's like, yeah, blood and soil do that's those are the fresh new <laughs> ideas that they have to reach new voters you know this is someone who political beliefs are well to the right um they're the wealth that they accrued um or gained through you know facebook buying their company uh is going to mean that they're here for a long time and the success of Andorone less than a year after its founding was able to get government contracts and start uh, negotiations for even more uh i think speak to it coming in exactly where it needs to, which is that other, I mean, it is true, right? That government contractors were trying to build things or overpromise things at huge cost because it's part of the traditional system and just spending the money and not really caring, right? Andoru was able to come in and say, we can offer this at a much lower cost, but the technology is hugely concerning, right? This is a privacy violation waiting to happen. It watches everything. One form of it is the Latisse that just watches everything, right? There are other types of technologies that they're developing. They have ghosts. It's, it's supposed to be a line of autonomous drones, right? That operate on a closed loop, whatever. You you know, a closed loop around a specific node of the Latisse network, and that don't need human intervention. And then we'll signal if they do, if they if, if there's going to be a decision that may result in some sort of harm, uh, right, to uh, to another person. They're working on uh, for, for deploying bases or for deploying stations for uh, the military bases and figuring out how to, you know, scale up uh, the information and the knowledge uh, generation that, you know, is available to soldiers, to drones, to, uh, to really any apparatus in the military. Device. That's dangerous in the hands of someone who um, is on the alt-right. I'll quickly like recap or summarize Andorilla's technology and surveillance systems, and then I'll throw it over to Michael. As Ed was saying, Andorilla's basically founded only in like 2018 as well. So it's a pretty new company, um, but they are through... Uh, you know, they just raised two hundred uh, million dollars in a in a Series C investment round, read, uh, led by uh, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, as well as a number of other you know big name VC firms. You know, so valuing Anduro at two billion dollars, you know, in, in its second year of existence, and that's all because. It is like a wedge kind of pushing into this like defense contractor space um, where there is a lot of money. So it's surveillance technology offerings uh, are it kind of initially started around these like sentry towers. That was its like first big technology, which are these like kind of uh, portable uh, solar powered towers that, you know, uh, supposedly they could be, you know, broken down within an hour and moved in like a pickup truck to a new location and then set back up very quickly. Um, But these sentry towers are bundled with uh, a bunch of cameras, radar, uh, lasers, and a lot of other sensors on top of this like 80-foot pole. This jumped up. Christ, if this were to fall into the wrong hands. So that was their first kind of big like hardware and then built into that 
is, uh, as Ed was saying, this, this Latisse or Lattice uh, AI system, which is their like kind of software platform um, that brings into it image recognition. So, you know, through the, the imagery um, that it captures through the sentry towers as well. Now they've also started rolling out this line of ghost uh, autonomous helicopter drones, um, which operate in conjunction with the sentry towers, but can also uh, kind of communicate with each other to produce these like swarm effects. And so um, I forget the the naming that they use explicit the, the military tech, uh, terminology and Michael can hop in on this, but it's essentially like a kind of constant operation or something. So if like if one ghost drone goes down or its battery runs out or something, then like automatically another one will come in and take over that same kind of like patrol route. We've got the sentry towers with the ghost drones and this like lattice artificial AI software platform. And that's kind of Enduro's like software technology offerings right now. Yeah, so these three main things are the, the three key Enduro products, the, the ghost surveillance drone, the lattice or lattice AI system, and the autonomous sentry towers. But they have a fourth product too, which is the Anvil. It's a counter drone drone. So it's like a drone battering ram and it sits on the ground. It has like this massive head, massive heavy head on it. Um, and you fly it up in the air and it smashes drones out of the sky. Uh, how effectively it actually works, who really knows? All the videos I've seen are like a static drone, like hovering in in place makes for some pretty cool uh, footage of drones exploding in midair and uh, <laughs> and falling and falling to the ground, which I'm pretty down with. You know, as you said, Jathan, that one of the reasons Andural has made such a swift strides in the defense industry is these autonomous sentry towers, and I think the way they've approached it is telling, and it um, maybe speaks to why one of the reasons why they've been successful and why they're a fairly terrifying company, which is that they've understood that like spending millions and millions of dollars on redesigning from the ground up a century tower with its own new sensors and its own new systems and so on is not where the action's at. The action is in how you embed those that system into a larger software framework that allows you to do analysis and to make the towers themselves portable, cheap, and easy to assemble and operate. You know, the shift in in defense and border technologies is towards software rather than hardware. And so, the, yes, they build the Sentry Tower, right? But like, as Ed was saying, you know, the Sentry Tower is like cobbled together from um, basically off the shelf parts, which they've, I'm sure, customized and done a whole bunch of stuff to. But it's like, it's not a piece of wizardry. It's just a bunch of clever tech engineers throwing something together to make a prototype and then getting it up and running and then like tweaking and building and building the software and engaging in that very Silicon Valley process, right? Of like, get a prototype up fast, test it, do multiple iterations, keep testing, get it out in the field, get it engaged with the end users and tweak it and improve it. So, you know, you see Andural um, install the Sentry Towers, work with uh, Customs and Border Patrol, and very quickly get it up to uh, a capability that that impresses um, CBP. And then they're getting contracts, and they've recently been made a program of record, which in like um, military and government acquisition in general means that they're like hit a high plateau of contractor where they're like noted as a key supplier, and they get like a large contract. They have a kind of enduring status with the agency. This bringing of not just Silicon Valley technology, but like a Silicon Valley mindset and process to the military sphere is what is really transformative. And I think something we could get into now or in a bit is, is the relationship between what Andural does and the way Silicon Valley works 
compared to the traditional way that military um, acquisitions work? Because I think that's a big part of the, the puzzle here with, with Andural, but and also with Palantir. Yeah, we can definitely get into that. And I do want to, I want to emphasize that point that with Andural now being this program of record, which means that they basically have like a dedicated budget line in the Department of Homeland Security's budget, um, as well as, you know, they're, they're, they have contracts with uh, like the U.S. Marines and the Navy, but they also have contracts with the Royal uh, UK Navy. They're getting all these big contracts, but that is such a huge, you know, within two years of existence, they are already this program of record, right? They have a dedicated budget line, which is so important because what that means is now they are part of this blob, this kind of military industrial complex, this homeland security blob. There's a lot of stickiness and inertia too. Once you become a program of record, uh, chances are you will not not be a program of record, no matter who is in power, um, who the, you know, what party holds control over the executive or legislative or judicial branch, right? It's like, no, you are now part of the system the establishment. Right. Not only that, they've become part of a system by working in a way that the system knows it now needs to work. So like there's a recognition from the Department of Defense, from Customs and Border Patrol, from all of these kinds of agencies, that the way that they've been doing things doesn't work anymore. It might have been really good for building aircraft carriers um, or for like armored personnel carriers or whatever, where you have these large pieces of physical hardware and you have long lead times and you want to get the piece of hardware right because you're going to like, you're going to test it, but then you're going to build thousands of these things or in the case of aircraft carriers, um, just a handful of them, but they're going to last for a really long time. And so the, the system's different. What's happened now is the technology is more software driven. It's often smaller um, and capabilities are changing faster and faster. And so that old model of like really long lead times on on development of splitting up military contracts into multiple parts, which are farmed out to different um, different primes or to different smaller contractors so that everybody gets a piece of the pie, that that old system just doesn't work to develop uh, responsive technologies, to develop things that have AI built into them. Um, and all the stuff that we're sort of seeing uh, in the consumer space and as well as in, as well as in the government and military. And so like Andural coming to the military and coming to Border Patrol at a time when those, those entities are saying, holy shit, like the way we've been doing things isn't working and we need to learn what these Silicon Valley folks are doing. And Andural is there like with the brochure and the and the prototypes and and they're ready to roll. The negative things we can say about this about this company, like Palmer Lucky and and Peter Thiel and all these guys, their like analysis of what the problem is in military technology industry is like spot on, right? Palmer has said, I want to change how the military tech industry works. Like he wants to change how the military buys stuff basically. So it's not just about the technology. It's about transforming this, this whole sector. Like Andural wants to be the, the winner of that game, but they want to change it all and make it more like Silicon Valley's um, processes of tech development and, and, um, right. and tech funding. That's like a thread of why Palmer, Lucky, and the, the Andural project and the wave of companies that will inevitably follow it are, you know, dangerous or concerning, right? He, he was correct that it is a bit of a surprise that despite the historical closeness of Silicon Valley and the government, more companies were not involved in uh, government contracting. And it is a testament also to like the environment that he was able to take advantage of that it's been not even two years uh, or just over two years. And they've already been able to secure a role in Project Maven, 
right? A huge project, a huge drone project that's going to be used to help improve the ability of drones to recognize faces in, in, in some of these targeted programs in part. This is one, a testament to the fact that his model works, right? And two, I think concerning that the industry is, or the defense contracting industry is, so to speak, open to that sort of disruption, right? The way in which contracts are negotiated or secured or provided, the way in which the technology is usually procured and advanced and developed, all of this is able to be shaken up by startup of executives from another one of the major contractors just doing off-the-shelf stuff and streamlining costs down because of how abhorrent the usual costs are for contractors. And that that's enough to just attract waves and waves and waves of interest in contracts. That's going to be a model that a lot of companies if they're listening, right, are going to follow or people who leave that company are going to follow and when they try to make their own startup. Quit watching Avengers movies. <laughs> There's a literal video game that this just this happened in uh, Watch Dogs Legion. The uh, Britain is taken over by a private military contractor and one of the secret projects they have is um, this drone that's going to kill people before they even think to do a crime, you know, so we and, and it will wipe them out as a threat. <laughs> and but, it just reminded me of the ghost. Yeah, but but we've <laughs> talked about this before in on the on the podcast as well that um Peter Till has also invested in another company. I can't remember its name. I think it has some kind of like Greek-based name, but the idea behind it is that it's meant to be this kind of like preemption, right? So they they're wanting to use this advanced AI-driven image recognition and all that to do things like, you know, preempt when before somebody throws a punch in a bar fight, right. for example, or preempt um, before somebody pulls a, a gun in a, in a, you know, uh, in a crowded area in a concert or an airport or something like that. Right. Like this. So they, they want to have this control over time and space uh, in a, in a lot right. of ways, like the um, Anduro, the technology is very geographical in the sense that it is very much about like securing borders. It's about securing space. Um, but then, you know, Peter Till is also investing in, in these other really temporal technologies that are about controlling time and controlling action and movement and process through time and before time. There's this time-space element is, is deeply, deeply a part of how these technologies are trying to, and, and uh, trying to work, but also rethinking what's capable, what's possible. I think this desire for preemption, this desire to have predictive models and systems and forms of exercising power that allow you to act now in order to control the future is actually this um, logic that has emerged for the for the modern state and in particular the US state ever since 9-11, right? This move to try to preempt the threat before it arrives. And so you want to act now ahead of time because that thing over there that might become threatening at some point in the future is best neutralized before it even becomes a threat. And so the drone program uh, in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, elsewhere around the greater Middle East and South Asia and so on um, and through Africa, that's a lot of what that is about is trying to control threats, eliminate threats before they arrive. One of the problems of that system is that it's actually like not that great at doing it. It's good at killing people. And, you know, it's it's occasionally good at killing the right people. It is dependent Which, on data. Importantly, the, who, the right people, depending on who's defining the right people, because there's also right. so much post hoc at, uh, redefining. Oh, the people we only kill the right people because we define the right people based on who we kill. 
this is the famous claim by John Brennan um, to, to Congress um, when he was, I think when he was being confirmed as CIA director was like, well, we haven't had any mistakes. Like mm. we've, we've killed no civilians mm. with, the, with the drone program. And the reason that he could like make that claim with a straight face is, uh, is, is well, first of all, because he's a liar, but, but secondly, because <laughs> the US military um, classifies anyone killed in a drone strike as a military aged male, which basically means a male between 14 and 55, uh, a military aged male, unless proven otherwise. And how do you prove otherwise? Well, you've got to go and like present the bodies in some way, right? Or like show incontrovertible evidence to counter the claims of the US military. So yeah, the, the, the US military claims they're like almost always hitting the right people. But of course, that's that's completely untrue. You know, what the drone program in some ways is trying to do is sort of stamp out threat, right, before it arrives. And the problem with trying to stamp out threat before it arrives is that just like in any technological system or data-driven system, the quality of your data and the quality of the algorithmic processes that you're running on it is going to dictate how good you are at identifying those threats, right? The story of warfare is that like it's incredibly difficult actually to obtain quality data about uh, about a battlefield environment or about or even just about an area that you're trying to conduct surveillance on. And so what the U.S military and the CIA have mostly been doing, at least as far as we know from what's been leaked or declassified, what they've mostly been doing is like tracking cell phones and using like human intelligence on the ground and and uh, and then overhead visual surveillance of various kinds to try to like map correlations between those different data points. Um, but they know that there's this whole other world out there, right, of like much more powerful big databases that could be used and, and different kinds of techniques for analyzing data that could be used to, they think, produce more accurate systems of prediction um, and then enable more powerful acts of preemption. And so like Project Maven that Ed mentioned is the Department of Defense initiative that's it's actually called the um, Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, um, but that doesn't uh, roll off the tongue so well. So yeah. uh, Project Maven. Uh, and what that really is, is it's an initiative in the first instance to, to try and build better systems for machine learning analysis of drone vision. But the larger game of it is to try to introduce Silicon Valley logics and Silicon Valley type machine learning systems into the military space. So drones are like the test case, but Project Maven has a much broader ambition, which is why Andural and these other companies are kind of cropping up on the edges of it now, because it's actually as much about like perception and datafication and computerization of perception as it is about in general, as it is about like drones in particular. I think your essay on this, on uh, drones, is really struck me just even from the beginning because it reframes just like really obvious facts about drones and then recontextualizes into the, as you said, the fact that they are going to be part of like this larger attempt to reshape the logic of and the, and, the, and the information streams that go into decisions and contextualization and presentation of information. Like just from the beginning, you, you yeah, said, we'll, you know, we'll throw a link to this in the project episode description as well. Uh, it's an mm -hmm. essay by Michael called The Testimony of Drones from the uh, Sydney Review of Books. There are two points, like there, there's one at the beginning where you talk about drones as, as knowledge and then like the idea of witnessing and violent interventions, I think is really interesting. And, you know, in the opening, drones do more than see the world. They kill, terrorize, surveil, record, search, map deliver and fertilize, to name just some of the more prominent uses. Drones can do all of this because they are knowledge machines. They're remotely piloted and equipped with sensors. Drones transmit visual, geographic, diagnostic, and multispectral information back to a controller where it can be analyzed and acted upon. 
Drones perceive the world through a complex mix of sensors and receivers, monitoring their environment, responding and generating data. The knowledge work of drones has datafication at its center. The transformation of sensory perception into computational information structured and delimited by the technical capacities of hardware, software, and network. But drone knowledges are also shaped by their operators, by their places, the atmospheres they navigate, by the imaginaries of the militaries, corporations, technologists, and policymakers. All this means that drones are not simply observers of events, but active participants in their making, right? And then much later on, you talk about the act of witnessing. You say witnessing is one of the most significant points of intervention into violent conflict because it asserts significance, meaning, and responsibility. To, to bear witness to events is injunction to act. One might refuse the burden or reject the imperatives of justice, but witnessing is nonetheless a fundamentally relational experience. It forges a bond. If the witness should choose to speak, testimony can make, take uh, many forms. Pericles' funeral narration is perhaps the earliest war testimony in European history. It summons the authority of what Pericles has seen or learned directly from others. It seeks to give account for the war to the dead. It tightens the fabric of the polity by creating a shared account of what happened and its meaning. You know, this essay really, I think, for me, like, as you said, kind of like opens up uh, the military connection between Silicon Valley. Typically, we only really think about it as uh, as the historical context, right? A lot of the Silicon Valley and the government collaborated during the Cold War to develop key technologies um, that were then taken by Silicon Valley to create consumer-facing applications and now undergird most of daily life. But there's also underneath here going on like real big changes in how violent conflict happens um, in how violent conflict is uh, justified in how violent subjects are interrogated or justified or targeted. Even the way an individual who does violence is forced to confront the violence. And all of this also has a corrosive effect on the ability of individuals, of societies, of the military itself to have any sort of ethical regard for what's going on, to have any chance to step in and stop it because of all these levels that may be introduced of separation and, and dissociation also allows us to just be told something that is flat out not true, but is true given the way that they've constructed things, right? Like you said, military age adult, such a widely constructed category that it means anyone and everyone who is killed by a drone strike, essentially, right? Except for women and children. And that is a huge problem in trying to really figure out what the problem is, how to confront it, how to, uh, how to recruit people to confront it. You talked about Silicon Valley's logic entering here. Do you see this sort of, with that logic, the way of justifying, you know, a mass amount of, I guess, misery and suffering that happens, you know, in Silicon Valley through the supply chain, even more so now with like drone operators and, and other types of human operators of these supposedly autonomous devices who are there like to press a button to help it kill someone or to press a button to oversight it or oversee it or to press a button in one way or another to like watch it but not to really do it by silicon valley logics i'm referring to that definitely like the the push towards an automation that um hides or or makes invisible the human labor or reduces the human labor to very narrow sets of engagements where where there's limited kind of agency but i'm also thinking of just the kind of the drive towards more data 
um, and the drive towards increasingly recursive analysis of the data and increasingly recursive construction of systems for the analysis of data. If we think about the that example we've been talking about, about the military-aged males and the US system saying, well, like everybody that we've hit with a drone strike is a military-aged male unless you prove that they're a woman or a child. The problem of that, of course, is it means you're getting really bad data back into your system, right? Unless mm. they're like secretly actually counting things much more accurately for the purposes of fine-tuning their systems, and I highly doubt it, they're, they're making their data worse and worse, right? And, you know, we mm. know the like the mantra of bad data in and trash output, right? So I think that there is a recognition within the military spheres that this approach they've been taking doesn't work and that you need to move towards a Silicon Valley perspective, which like is maybe more closely aligned to what the NSA and other intelligence agencies have been doing, which is like, just get all of the information that you can, extract everything that you can from it, and don't just build an algorithm that searches for something. Train that algorithm, train it and retrain it, keep tweaking it, keep making it stronger and better, keep making new versions of it. And so that your the technology then is in like a much more symbiotic relationship with the data that you're collecting and with the actions that you're taking. And I think this is like the endural thing to bring it back to these guys is that this is kind of part of what they're promising the military and, and border patrols. Like it's not just that they have these like little drones, like every second startup has a fancy little drone that does some kind of semi-swarming thing, like human machine teaming thing, or enables like persistent action. If one drops out, then another one can take its place. Like none of that is super impressive really. But, but what is interesting is, is promising that, that that is part of and subservient to this larger um, AI system, which will allow Border Patrol or the Navy or the US Air Force or whatever to integrate all of these data points and not just integrate them and analyze them, but then bring them down into a space of phenomenological accessibility so that like, you know, a pilot can or a, or a drone operator can like strap on a headset and they can be seeing the various relevant points of pieces of information selected out of this vast mess by the machine learning system and then delivered to them as like, these are the things you will need to make some action decisions around, right? That's new, right? That's new everywhere, I suppose, but like that's new for, for militaries and, and border patrol. And that's, I think, um, where we're really seeing that kind of Silicon Valley mentality, like the endless des endless tweaking, endless desire for, for improvement, endless desire for more data, more points of action, cleaner analysis, and then it's presentation into accessible, easy to understand interfaces. These kinds of technologies, like, you know, you mentioned border patrol officer or, or you know, a war fighter in a combat zone strapping on this kind of virtual reality headset, which puts them phenomenologically in the, in the space of the drone, right? Like they are now seeing what the drone sees. They are kind of seamlessly cyborgian connected to it. And, and it becomes this extension of them. It feels really powerful, when you have that technology, I've, I've had the experience of using kind of consumer drones in that same way, um, where I, I had a friend that had, you know, had one of these consumer drones. He's a geographer and he does a lot of um, work kind of using it for like surveying and things like that. Having this consumer octo drone, which is very similar to the kind of like ghost drones Enduro is producing and so on. But then um, having a virtual reality headset on and being able to see what the drone sees flying through the sky, having this kind of really seamless uh, interface to be able to control the drone, um, it feels really powerful. 
it, it does give you this sense of a kind of a, a omniscience, uh, a sense of a, of a different point of view. Um, but with that power, of course, obviously is a very corrupting force as well, because now the framing of, you know, Enduro's surveillance offerings, whether it's the, you know, the autonomous sentry towers or the ghost drones or whatever, all kind of linked into this, uh, you know, the Lattice network has this like mobile uh, smartphone app, basically, that will automatically update border patrol officer that suspicious figures or vehicle have been detected. It automates. And I think that's really important is that it automates this act of surveillance. And the, the CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol, talks explicitly about the power of what Enduro offers is that it automates the surveillance so that the officers can focus on interception, right? They no longer have to think about the operation of the surveillance system because it, it just happens been seamlessly, they can focus on their real duty, which is using the power of that surveillance to then go out there and intercept anybody that is, you know, supposedly trying to cross the border or anything. And, and there's a lot of these same logics as well. Of They basically define illegal immigrant or a target as anybody that the system has captured, right? So so you get this, again, this kind of post-talk definition where it's like, well, you know, the drones only kill the right people because by being killed by a drone, that makes them the right people. The same logic applies with these border technologies is that the, the surveillance systems only capture the people that deserve to be captured because by definition, they wouldn't have been captured by the surveillance system if they weren't dangerous or illegal or, you know, whatever. That kind of way of framing it also gives a lot of this kind of corrupt power to the people on the ground, right? They feel, you know, not to bring it back to the Lord of the Rings, but it is very much like, you know, putting on the one ring and you you get all this power, but through that power, it does corrupt your very soul. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. Oh, Jesus. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. Yes, sir. You know, Donna Haraway has this famous essay from from the late 90s where she talks about uh, the view from nowhere, like the what she calls the God trick of perception, where it seems like what you're seeing is super objective. You're getting the objective truth of reality presented back to you. Um, and that's the power of, of the God trick perspective. And she's talking about it in relation to science, right? That science gives us this like view that we're getting objective reality. But she's also talking about um, the view from above. Like she's reflecting on what it means to look at the earth from, from far away. And so like the drone kind of gives gives us this this sense that like um, we're seeing the world as it is and this the the god trick of that is that sense of power that sense of power that comes from that perspective it's like um, it's exciting and alluring like you are the kind of cyborg you have the prosthetic vision to see where where the human body shouldn't be um, and where the human eyes shouldn't be floating but it's deceptive because we're only getting a singular perspective and actually the further we get from the ground in many ways the less intimate our understanding of what is happening down there is but then from the point of view of, of these systems it's less about any individual occurrence popping up on the system in a, in a meaningful way and more about everything that enters into the frame of the system as you said like immediately being kind of guilty until proven innocent. The instant you're noticed by the system, you're noticed by the system. If you have been noticed by the system, then you should have been noticed by the system. And the system notices things that are problematic, right? Or potential threats or whatever. But you're not noticed as a person 
You know, this is like uh, Gilles Deleuze in that famous um, essay, The Postscript on the Society of Control, like talks about this as the individual. The people walking through uh, the border area um, between like the Rio Grande Valley or whatever, the people walking through on that that are, that are identified by the Andural ghost drone or by the their century towers and then pulled into the Lattice um, AI system, they're not people yet. Um, they're not identified as anything. All they are is these data points, these individuals, but actions will be taken based on their presence as individuals within within the system. Um, and they're already being acted upon politically as these kind of individual data points. And the same, you know, the same logic exists in all sorts of border crossings and, um, and all sorts of national security systems. But here they're just covering over like instead of it being when you cross a, a border at an airport or something and, and a data point gets flagged or not flagged, here you're moving through space, right? So the actual physical space that we live in is being transformed into this space of, of datification and, and of potential tagging as threat. And then what might follow from that, right? Like Border Patrol comes and messes with you and you may not be up to anything illegal, quote unquote illegal. Anyway, you're already determined that way by the system. This reminds me of Predpol's red boxes, right? Mm. Any activity within the red box is criminal by virtue of happening within the red box and you become suspicious. But the suspicion is also not universalized, even though the red box is supposed to be a signifier of that. It ends up being a place for you to then rely on the stereotypical and the gut instinct and all these other forms of, you know, discriminating and intuiting criminality. And I think this border example, especially with Andorul, you know, this, the first story we were, looked over where they kind of look at this system being built at the border, you know, one of the people who figures prominently near the end of it is this fifth generation uh, rancher who owns a huge uh, chunk of land and the border. And he talks about how, they're putting it there so he can, you know, help and call in the local patrol stations. They changed his name because they don't want him to be bothered by drug cartels. And then maybe two paragraphs later, they say that Lattice was built. And in a 10-week span, uh, 55 people were caught and 39 of those were, n were not involved with drugs in any way, shape or form. So it's like, okay, you, like immediately the assumption is, well, in the story, like they're changing his name and that can be valid for concern for security reasons. But there's no sort of consideration until the very end of the story about the fact that most of the people are people crossing the border, right? And not like criminals and not like undesirable elements of society, but that's what the data is going to be used and deployed for. And I think like at the very end, you know, the interviewer leaves their interview with uh, Palmer Lucky. He's high off like the excitement of this tech. And it's like then, like literally in the last two paragraphs, they're like, oh, I, the founders didn't mention anything about the people who are caught in this. Mm. What about those people? Are they, they say, you know, what is the right way to treat those individuals? What are the children and the parents who are now being torn apart while crossing? Those are the social and political questions, not technical specifications. But it is increasingly the case that these people who build the new technologies trigger political consequences. This, even though that points in the right direction, still misses the point. And as you talked about in your own work, drones, these sorts of, you know, visual technologies, these viewing t surveillance technologies are not simply technical systems. They sit at the vast intersection of all sorts of phenomenon and processes. It's easy to get very trapped and stuck on very small questions of the immediate political problems and social problems they pose. Those are important. And lose sight of the larger disruption, I guess, for lack of a better word, that these companies are affecting. That Andrew Real is, yeah, it's, you know, 
creating a border system that, like you said, is turning people into individuals. That process of datafication individual and, and turning people into just data points or, uh, you know, guilty to proven otherwise. It has, you know, consequences for people who are crossing, but also has consequences for when the military adopts it and integrates it into the wider system or incorporates it into how they go about overseas or at home looking at everyone else. The border ends up being a, you know, a laboratory uh, for new ways to deal with populations and new ways of remote control of populations, which is, has a long history in cities even before technology was advanced as it is now to be able to provide this. That's really important as well, that that kind of technocratic trick that they're doing, which is, you know, technologies are kind of focusing on solving these dilemmas of uh, homeland security, of border security, of war, of crime, right? This is this is the bread and butter of Enduro, of Palantir, of Predpol, of all these technologies, which is to ultimately um, make these really kind of brutal technological options feel in a lot of ways objective, uh, feel like they are disconnected from any concerns having to do with ethics or politics, and therefore make uh, these kind of really cruel and brutal operations, whether it's it's killing or it's capturing or it's criminalizing people, um, ultimately more palatable to this kind of uh, liberal conscious, right? To this idea of how a good democracy in the world is meant to act. The, the trick there as well is to make that more palatable and more attractive across the aisle um, as well. So, I mean, we, we ha- we've only hinted at the fact that you know, Palmer Lucky has, you know, deep ties to the right wing. He's a huge and outspoken Trump supporter. You know, he hosted this big fundraiser at his house with, you know, with Trump there, but also people like Kimberly Guilfoyle um, and, you know, all these other representatives from the Trump campaign. He's donated a lot of money. So very much in this way, he's he, he's a real acolyte of Peter Till, very much under the kind of vampiric seduction um, of Peter Till. Palmer Lucky is also really explicit about the fact that it doesn't matter who wins the election. It doesn't matter who's in power, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, uh, because they are simply offering technological solutions to real world problems. And those kinds of solutions will be uh, attractive and they'll be taken up by whoever's in power. And there's a lot of proof in that pudding as well, because, I mean, we, we hear about Democrats co-sponsoring bills like uh, in, in 2018, Will Hurd, um, who's a, a congressional representative um, whose district covers and stretches across the Texas and Mexico border, put forth this bill in, in Congress called SMART. It's really a targeting me, just just trying to make me angry. It's called the SMART Act. The SMART is obviously a uh, is an acronym, and it stands for Secure Miles with All Resources and Technology. Right. And it was co-sponsored with the Democrats. So, so this is a bipartisan project that Enduro is in. Trump himself has praised the virtual wall, um, has praised Enduro Industries. But at the same time, uh, Palmer Lucky has gone all in, along with Trey Stevens, um, who we've mentioned before as a, a co-founder of Enduro. Search for Trey Stevens, and, you, and two of the top hits are his Founders Fund profile and his Federalist Society profile, which shows that yes. we're dealing with a certified <laughs> psychopath uh, who has this history as well. He's, he's another character that we need to like dive into at some point. 
um, because you read his uh, Trey Stevens uh, bio starts with Trey was a senior in high school on 9-11 and was inspired to attend Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, focusing on Arabic and security studies, later serving as a computational linguist, building enterprise solutions to Arabic Persian name matching and data enrichment within the United States intelligence community. So obviously a CIA spook um, who, who then got into the VC world. But all of that is to say that Palmer Lucky and Trey Stevens have also been very vocal as well that part of their goal for reconfiguring how defense contracting works, how military acquisition and technology works with this Silicon Valley mindset is to make it a a competitor against China. So they wrap into this a lot of this anti-Chinese rhetoric. Uh, You know, Palmer Lucky, uh, in a talk that he gave like last year at the UC Irvine Business School, where he was a distinguished speaker in in their series, he said, quote, "Uh, you have Chinese nationals working in the Google London office, signing this letter, protesting the Project Maven program. Of course, they don't mind if China has better technology. They're Chinese, right? And Trey Stevens has said very similar things um, about how anybody protesting against Project Maven were likely Chinese citizens, and most of Silicon Valley actually supports building weapons. But any any concerns that people have over building weapons is due to them being quote coddled as a child, um, and right. so they they are head on as well. They're using bipartisan rhetoric here because on one hand they have these deep contracts with the Department of Homeland Security with the. Customs and Border Patrol, which ties directly into the Trump rhetoric around building the wall and, you know, and, and the, the danger of immigrants and, and all this. But at the same time, they're also very much using this rhetoric. If we don't do it, we in the sense that the U.S. and the American military doesn't build these technologies, then the Chinese will. And, and they'll use it for evil, whereas we'll use it for good. And this plays directly into Biden, uh, who is very hawkish on China and has this this view of um, American superiority is necessary in the threat and in the face of um, a rising Chinese hegemon. And so that plays directly into as well what we talked about before and what Palmer Luckey has said in interviews, that it doesn't matter who's in power, Republican or Democrat, because not only are they now a product of record for the Department of Homeland Security, they are also playing into all of the worst impulses, all of the worst nationalist impulses from the Republicans, from the Democrats, while also presenting these technocratic solutions that are, you know, supposed to be really budget friendly, highly effective, um, but also provides distance from actually pulling a trigger. Um, that distance from from uh, being subjective in any way, it's, it's pure obje- objectivity. This type of virtual border wall, this type of highly technocratic approach, approach to surveillance and military will just escalate under Biden because I think, you know, historically this is actually more of a Democrat approach to dealing with with these kinds of problems. I mean, I think that, that a, a big concrete wall um, along the border is is offensive and gross and gets people in, in the US, or at least it seems from, from a distance, like, you know, enough people get really outraged by that. But like when you replace that and you say, well, we're going to, we're going to still secure the border, but it's going to be like a virtual wall. We're using machine learning systems. It's all high tech. No one's going to get stranded in the desert on the wrong side of a concrete wall. Like we can get customs agents out there. They can rescue those people. And and if they need to be sent back to where they're, they're from, they can get sent back. This is the humane 
technocratic, reliable, affordable way to do it. And like, who could possibly object to this? Like we have to secure borders and and this is the right way to do it. And so I think that kind of logic will be kind of quite compelling in the public discourse. And so I think we'll see this kind of technology um, accelerating rather than slowing down because it allows an incoming Biden administration to be like firm on the border without being, you know, a a brutal Trump-like build a massive concrete and steel wall and that people can't move through it, it solves the problem for them. Right, because it's and, a problem of optics. In, yeah, in, exactly. In a, in a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's like a triple entendre there as well, because, you know, we've been talking about the optics of the drone and the drone vision and drone perception and the politics of that. But there's also this this optics in terms of like the public relations um, and something like Enduro's technology plays directly into a, a, a positive optics that has this, this kind of veneer around it of being really advanced, uh, next generation, um, but also less bloodless in some ways, right? Removed from a distance. And, and so it plays directly into, as you were saying, Michael, that, that kind of optics of civility, um, which is so much about what the Democratic Party's whole platform basically is. The drone warfare system that the U.S. has right now is, of course, an Obama-era invention in its in its current form. I mean, drone strikes started uh, very shortly after 9/11. The first the first attempted drone strike was um, in like October 2001 um, in Afghanistan, but like it was used pretty sparingly. Uh, drones were used pretty sparingly under Bush. Um, they weren't really kind of, they were more of a CIA thing and they weren't embraced as the kind of spear of American power in the way that they were under Obama. You know, Bush was all about the torture um, and rendition and these like dark arts and, and stuff. But, you know, when Obama came into office and drew a line under all of that and said, we're like, we're not going to do that anymore, but we're also not going to unwind our imperial involvements. Um, they needed something else to to take its place. And so, you know, drones were a key part of that. And part of the drone war warfare system um, has always been this like datification, this promise of a kind of cleanliness of precision. Uh, the rhetoric around drones is, is, is very medical and clinical. It's, it's surgical strikes. Um, it's precise warfare. You know, there's language about hygiene. It's about, you know, cleaning up the body politic, like excising virus from, from these countries, like the virus of anti-Americanism or of, um, you know, Al-Qaeda or whatever, ex- Islamic extremism. And the drone is supposed to do this. It'll use the best data. It will leverage all of this intelligence and um, it will do it in a precise way that like results in the minimum amount of civilian casualties. The drone was like Obama's way of saying, no, 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 we can do war and have an empire, but we can do it in a, in a way that is like the best possible outcome for civilians. Drone warfare has very high approval ratings because it promises all of those things while removing politics from the fray. Like you don't hear about it very much. You don't see mm-hmm. it very much. Like war disappears and the violence disappears, even though it's all happening now through a technology that is that is all about perception. So there's this kind of paradox, right? The all-seeing eye of the drone is also what then makes war and killing um, invisible. And I think there's a close relation between that logic and the logic of these types of um, security systems for border patrol, because, you know, it's not about launching missile strikes against people who cross the border, but it is about removing the border as like an object of of concern and, and contestation in the same way right. that it existed before. Like, I mean, of course, there will still be a politics about migration and so on, but it's it won't be about building a wall. The border as an, as an entity disappears from view because it becomes this like virtual terrain. That's deeply concerning because like 
you know, it's more and more of these crucial questions that public should be debating are moved out of the political domain and enter this kind of domain of technical discussion, right? Jathan, you shared this article about the Dadaist state. Um, and I think this is like very much in that logic, like the state that is driven by the accumulation of data, the attempt to leverage that data, but then at the same time, the handing over of so much of it to private enterprise all while distancing the state from the lives of people and reducing the points of political contact and contestation. So I find, you know, we have our own equivalence of this in Australia. I think this is like a deeply problematic tendency, even outside Andural, right? Um, Andural is is just one of the more successful early adopters of, of this approach and, and very successful in leveraging it for funding. I have two words for you. Predator drones. <laughs> you will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? <laughs> In many, many ways, the you know the Biden Harris administration um, will be run like an Obama third term. The drones yeah. are back, baby. You know the the invisibility of war and brutality and cruelty. That's they all hired. Back. Um, they hired some officials who who were key to defenses of um, family separation and caging children and civilians and deten- in detaining them. <laughs> So that's back, right? You know, yeah. uh, they won't be camps, but they'll they'll be detention centers. Um, virtual camps, Ed. We'll strap. <laughs> you just strap virtual reality headsets on uh, them. You know, mm-hmm. the, the you, you don't have to look at children in cages anymore. Instead, it's right. going to be like that movie Sleeper or whatever, right? Where they're all just actually tethered to their virtual reality cages. You know, better optics, better optics. They're going to take all those kids out of those camps. You kids want to learn how to play video games and put little VR goggles on them and they think they're just driving little tanks around and playing World of Tanks or World of Planes. In reality, they're over in Yemen destroying an entire country without even... Dude, that's Ender's game. That's Ender's game. I was discussing this with my wife and that's exactly the first thing she said. She's like, it's fucking Ender's game. There is that logic as well of a kind of inverse, because we've talked a lot about on this podcast, a lot of other people have talked about this, the war comes home, right? So this kind of militarization of police departments, um, the militarization of the border. Uh, and so it's, it's this sense that all these military tactics and technologies um, that were developed for use abroad come home and are used on, you know, the homeland, on populations within the U.S., populations trying to enter the U.S. But we see a kind of inverse of that, whereas Enduro is prototyping these technologies at home. Palantir is perfecting these technologies at home um, through its work with police departments, for example. So they can then export those technologies elsewhere. And, and we see this with, Enduro talks about um, Brian Schimpf, who's a former head of engineering at Palantir and is also a co-founder of Enduro, talks about how um, their long-term goals include things like protecting private sites like oil pipelines, um, but as well monitoring the battlefield of the future. So Schimpf uh, said in an interview, quote, looking at this, and he's talking about the, the lattice system and the sentry towers on the, the U.S.-Mexican border, looking at this helps you conceptualize what it would be like in Afghanistan if you had a forward operating base on top of this hill. It's the same problem. Yeah, this bizarre version of, you know, we had the war 
more come home, then people started using the homeland as a laboratory for developing the technologies of the future, of future war, which will then be exported elsewhere. So there is this, this weird kind of loop and, and, and we can't escape this relationship between quote unquote homeland security and next generation warfare. To both of your points, you know, I thought it was interesting when you talked about removing the border as a site of contesting in our politics. You know, when we talk about political economy of tech, you know, if you're aware of the things, you can contest them, right? And because all of these things are ultimately as gargantuan as they might see, they're human system, technical systems, but still also comprised of a multitude of humans and human processes. But if you remove borders, if you remove certain, uh, you know, relations and enshrine them as sacred or remove them from public view, that's just as good as, you know, transforming it into some inhuman thing that can't be negotiated with. You know, like Palmer Lucky hints at these, this desire to introduce predictive analytics and tag everything with metadata and, and feed that information. And I remember there's this conference he went to, this web summit last year, Libs in Portugal, where he, you know, says... Um, you know, I think, and practically speaking, in the future, I think soldiers are going to be superheroes who have the power of perfect omniscience over the area of operations where they know where every enemy is, every friend is, every asset is. Uh, and he thinks that it's unlikely that soldiers of the future will carry weapons in the field. Instead, they would remotely operate machines and weapons from far away. That is interesting because I feel like there's some contradictions going on in there, right? Yeah, Jeremy says, hey, you got to stop watching Marvel movies, right? Marvel, yeah, the superheroes are vigilantes in their own right. He wants right, civil right? war, all right. Oh, he <laughs> yeah. wants civil war. <laughs> if a soldier is a superhero, right, they're not a superhero because they're an operator of a drone or a series of machines. But they'd be a superhero in his mind, in reality, if they have the ability to at any point ascertain what a threat is and what's not is, and decide it much in the way that you're talking about drones or at the frontier of, of shifting how knowledge production goes on, right? That soldiers would eventually become the ultimate arbiters of reality in that sense. And where because a soldier has all this information being streamed into them, they know what they say is right. They know who's an enemy. They know who's a friend. They know what they can use and they know what they can't trust. By using the soldiers the soldiers will end up also re-legitimizing the state's authority and monopoly on these forms of violence and coercion, much in the way that uh, science and analytics and predictive policing re-legitimized uh, racist policing practices. This push towards predictive analytics will now allow uh, the military to re-legitimize a long history of racism, of imperialism, uh, torture, of, you know, of wanton violence and aggression in the name of superhero, right? And justice. What you're talking about there, Ed, really fits into the kind of fantasy that animates so much of this technology, this fantasy of total awareness, and whether that is a total awareness of at a, at a machine learning level that is like of, a, of an entire geographic space, um, or whether it is total awareness that can, then gets distilled down to the to the soldier themselves and, and what they can perceive. I think this is like a deep fantasy. The collapse kind of analogy, I guess, between the machine learning system and the human um, soldier on the end of it is deeply problematic. Um, and I wonder how far away from reality in terms of the way military training would have to transform and in terms of the way human 
cognitive capacity to manage um, all these different data inputs and different systems and so on would would transform. I think there's this like too much Marvel or um, or too much um, video games, you know, like is this Metal Gear Solid, just fantasy stuff about how you're going to um, orchestrate the battlefield from, you know, some kind of like Google Glasses thing or like some sort of uh, thing strapped to your arm. I mean, the fantasy that this could be an attainable outcome for trained soldiers who make uh, shit money um, and are mostly just like trying to get out of the military in order to retain some health benefits and get um, some access to college or to uh, a further path forward in life. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up our free episode where we you know talking about uh, war by other nerds, um, and then we're gonna keep this conversation go. going in the premium episode um, where Michael is going to join us as well. Uh, so subscribe on patreon.com slash this machine kills to hear the kind of second part of our conversation. I'll leave uh, you, the dear listeners, with this teaser. In that same web summit um, that Ed mentioned where Palmer Lucky was speaking, he also said, quote, technological superiority is a prerequisite for ethical superiority. That is, <laughs> that is the mindset um, that is completely reconfiguring uh, not only how border security happens, homeland security happens, but how uh, essentially all politics, right, all war, right, happens right now is through this idea that we need technological superiority and from that will flow uh, the solutions um, for ethical problems, but not only solutions, but um, the superiority on the global stage, right? So those with the best technologies are by definition the most ethical. I'm going to wrap us up there. Michael, where can people find you? Um, do you have anything to plug? People can find me on Twitter at Richardson underscore M underscore A. Uh, I have a couple of new pieces of workout uh, that, I, that I'd like to plug. There's the essay that um, Ed mentioned, a testimony of drones in the Sydney Review of Books. And I have a recent article in uh, the academic journal Continuum um, about drones and drone cultures. Um, and the last thing is that if you're interested in drones um, and as a specific topic, uh, I'm running a, a series on uh, the Media Futures podcast called Drone Futures, um, which has a bunch of interviews and talks and stuff with academics working on drones and their cultural, technological, social, ecological impacts. Great. And I, yeah, I highly recommend people check that out. It's a, a font of useful information and really provocative, thought-provoking stuff. So on that note, then, uh, we will see you all in the premium episode later. Later.